0: The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground.
1: One of the things we did earlier today for the Sunday morning program is we chanted the refuges and precepts. We usually do that around the equinox and solstice, so four, four times a year. And uh, we won't do that tonight, but in light of you know what we've been doing in September, taking a fresh look at our meditation practice, like what do we do when we sit down, and to think about it as a kind of refuge, and this is uh, an important word in early Buddhism, and it's sort of a provocative question: Are we in need? Are you? Am I in need of a refuge in our life? It's like I don't know. I'm fine. <laughs> I feel safe, I feel on top of it. Anybody feel completely on top of it? <laughs> probably not, if we're being honest with ourselves, right? So given, I mean, just it just comes with the territory of being a human being, probably any living being. It's a really exposed thing, being a living being, being embodied, right? Because one of the fundamental facts that just goes with having a body is that we're exposed like to birth and death for example. I mean we're exposed to a lot more than that but that sort of gets our attention. Oh yeah this body is exposed to illness to death, to all the joys and sorrows that come the way of the body. And not only the body, the mind like emotionally, psychically, also very vulnerable. You could do something right now that would throw me for a loop. Any one of you could do something weird or provocative or insulting, you know, until you got under my skin. It probably wouldn't be that hard. (laughs) And, you know, and then I'd have to deal with whatever got triggered emotionally, mentally, right? Just like for you, too. I could put you on the spot, you know? And then we'd have to deal with whatever got triggered. So we're living in this place where we're quite exposed. It's just—it's not unusual. It's just the way that it is. So when we ask ourselves, as I'm suggesting, we do, because it's a personal question. It's for each of us to re- reflect on personally. Well, am I in need of a, a refuge? And if the answer is kind of yeah, then well, what has my life? having lived my life, having having learned a thing or two from paying attention, what have I found is actually a refuge. And I don't know about you but you know, like in sort of a childlike way, we tend to want our refuge to be out there. You know, like when we're an infant, a child our parents are kind of a refuge; they've got our back. Until we realize, you probably each of us we can probably remember some point when we realized my parents actually aren't capable of having my back. You know, for some people maybe it's not until they're thirty or forty or fifty years, right? And for some people, I remember very distinctly. I don't know what the age was exactly—six, seven, or eight. You know, like. I mean, basically seeing my parents acting out, I think a lot of it would turn the corner for me, was just seeing, observing them arguing with each other and how, like, out of control. And I mean, I had a pretty, you know, relatively wholesome upbringing, so I don't want to make it sound worse than what it was. But basically seeing that they don't have their act together, they don't know how to be happy, they don't even know how to take care of themselves, they're really hurting, they probably can't be there for me. Not that they didn't love me, but basically I can't count on them to show me the way and I can't even count on them necessarily to sort of meet me, know me, get me, right? Because they're so busy dealing with their own pain, their own confusion, their own lives, which I don't think is unusual, right? And we do that, hopefully, we do that also with our partners and dear friends and siblings. Like we realize they can't be a refuge for me. You know, we have to do this with our spiritual teachers and mentors and benefactors, as wise as they may be in moments, as generous as they may be in moments, compassionate that they may be in moments. That when it comes right down to it, I can't really count on them. Nobody can save us. Have you had that creeping realization, you know, in big and little ways in your life with people, some of these categories of people? So, this is sort of part of this reflection. So, what is a refuge? And the reason I've been saying all that recent stuff is somehow we come to the place where if there is a refuge, assuming I'm in need of a refuge, if there is one, It's going to be here and now. It's not going to be out there in another person. As useful as dear friends are and communities are, really, I mean, I'm a big believer in friendship and wholesome community and doing our best to find those places and support those places, like Common Ground and other, you know, and more intimate friendships, close friendships, partnerships. Do our best to heal our families so that, you know, parents, siblings, whatever can be a refuge of a kind, not a perfect refuge, not a permanent refuge, but to get the safety we can get from those places. But it's not a ultimate refuge. So that kind of gets us curious. Well, a real refuge would have to be here. So, always here. Is there anything that is possible, something that could be uncovered, and I could develop this skill, this muscle that would always remember it, you know, so that I'd be connected to a refuge that was trustworthy? So, you know, connected to our practice. Our practice is our refuge, so how do we formulate that in Buddhism and the Buddhist teachings? And so we have this reflection I mentioned. We did this recitation this morning. It's one of the few traditional buddhist things we do here at the center, although we're totally connected with these teachings from this person who lived 2,500 years ago. You know, We have this symbol. You probably noticed our graphic. Because in uh, tradition we're following in the footsteps of the Buddha. So that's if ever you're wondering why we have footprints on our sign outside or on our newsletter and our website, you know, because that was you know in the early years of of people interested in the Buddhist teachings, they didn't have statues. That came later, several hundred years later, with this intersection between Greek culture and the culture of northern India because of Alexander the Great, and Greece was sort of a dominant culture at that time in the world. And so to compete, they had to have statues like the Greeks did. So they started building statues of the Buddha. But before that, int- interestingly, the way they depicted, like, because symbols are powerful, so they wanted to remember, oh yeah, this guy had some wisdom, let's not forget what his teachings were. They depicted it as an empty meditation seat. So just like, a place where someone would sit, but they wouldn't they didn't draw anybody on that seat. Just like a place to practice, right? That was one symbol they had. And the other symbol was footprints. And the idea was somebody like and the, the Buddha said this, this is one of the famous talks, like the teachings, what he came to understand about his own mind, that wasn't something new. The way he described it was as if, and then you have to remember the tropics, that they, they lived in the tropics, as if a beautiful city once existed with wide lanes and parks and well organized right, neighborhoods, once existed, but then was forgotten. And the tropics, the forests took over the city, right? And then somebody came along, got really interested, paid close attention and realized, oh my God, there was a city here. Oh, I bet this was the road. Oh, let's clean this up. Let's cut down, let's, right? And so that's how the Buddha talked about these teachings. They're not his teachings. They were teachings that he rediscovered, right? Because these teachings, they're not even Buddhism. It's actually not correct to call these teachings Buddhism. That's why we more often use the word dharma, Which means the way it is, their basic human common sense, right, that the Buddha articulated. It's like teachings about the nature of our experience or teachings about the nature of our mind. That human beings that have had the good fortune to have enough safety, enough good fortune to be able to be reflective, right, to be able to take their heart, mind, and look at it. What the heck is going on? How is it that suffering arises here in my heart? And then because it's here, it gets acted out and gets the reverberations or all the ways that we cause harm, all the injustice in the world or the reverberations of our own minds collectively, cumulatively. And so the Buddha mapped it out He rebuilt the city, so to speak, or cleared the city. Oh, yeah. There's a way of understanding our mind that's liberating. And the short version of that is Buddha knowing Dhamma. These are the first two refuges. We take refuge in Buddha, not the guy who lived 2,600 years ago because he's dead, (laughs) right? So we can't, like, he's not going to have our back, right? Right? And any of the teachings that actually, from the Buddha, that make sense to you, they can only make sense if they line up with your own experience. So as soon as they start making sense, they're not the Buddha's teachings. They're your own understanding. Does that make sense? Right. So it's an important point because to whatever degree some of us, and we we are all to some degree idealistic or romantic or whatever, where we wanna sort of like, oh, I'm so grateful, you know, kind of putting whatever wisdom, whatever skill we've developed, putting it on, giving it away. It's really good to to understand that. No, that understanding is here. It's not the Buddhist understanding. That insight, that understanding, that capacity to be skillful, that capacity to be wise or kind, that's here. And it's not about pride. Or sort of in self inflation conceit. It's just about understanding what wisdom, what skill, what compassion, or any of these wholesome qualities are. It's something that's coming alive. It's that same city, you know, if you like that metaphor. That same city is sort of getting cleaned out right here. That same capacity to understand our mind. And the way this works is the problem that human beings have, the problem isn't nature, the problem is misperceiving nature, right? So the problem is really on this level of understanding. So the correction is to perceive, to understand in a way that's in alignment with the way it is. So that's why the first two refuges. Buddha knowing Dharma or Dhamma is the Pali word. Dharma is Sanskrit. The Pali equivalent is Dhamma. Two ancient Indian languages very similar. In early Buddhism is recorded, the teachings are recorded in Pali. And then later schools of Buddhism recorded the teachings in Sanskrit. So that's why there's confusion. So Buddha, this not the guy who lived two hundred or uh, two thousand five hundred years ago, but Buddha meaning wakefulness, being awake, being open, the capacity of this mind, your mind, anybody's mind, to be awake. Without an agenda, without greed or aversion, just noticing. Oh, it's like this, and what is that wakeful quality we re- refer to as Buddha? What does it know? Well, it is intimate, open with the way it is. And that's what dharma means. Buddha knows dharma. So, as somebody who is a student of the Buddhist teachings, right? what we're really devoted to is our refuge, what really has our back, what's really going to save us. And what is that? That's this capacity that's here and now when we remember to be interested in it this capacity of buddha knowing dhamma right is there anybody in the room who doesn't have some capacity you've uncovered it you've cleaned it up you've strengthened it cultivated it this capacity to be intimate with what's showing up in the moment right anybody not have that capacity it may be feeble a lot of the day. But in moments, right? we, have, we develop a little confidence. Oh, because what we notice when Buddha knows Dhamma, and then we see, we begin to discern or recognize the third refuge. So there are three, Buddha, Dhamma, or Dharma, and Sangha. Sangha, we superficially think of as spiritual community. You hear people like at Kamigam say, oh yeah, I love the Kamgon Sangha like saying, I love the Kamegaon community, such a great, great, wise group of folks. But real Sangha, the real, more technical meaning of Sangha means that when any human being, you, me, anybody, whether they've ever heard the Buddhist teachings, when there's a human being has an open, clear awareness, heart, being intimate, seeing clearly, feeling deeply the way it is, Buddha knowing Dhamma, then how they are in that moment, what they say, what they do or don't do, that's Sangha. Because Sangha is the natural responsivity, the, the natural participation, natural engagement that arises when a human being is relating or showing up with Buddha knowing Dhamma. So you want, it's like instead of thinking that, oh yeah, they're enlightened beings, it might be more useful to imagine that there are moments of enlightened activity, enlightened responses. And when you see it in a friend or you see it in yourself, you don't take it personally because you realize that skillful choice, that's those skillful words, that skillful silence, that skillful way of being in that moment, it arose because in the moments leading up, it was Buddha knowing Dhamma there was a sensitive, open, non-judging, clear heart or mind being intimate with the conditions that were there in that moment. And that allowed for a skillful way of engaging, choosing not to do this, to do that, to say this, to not say that. And that it feels, when you get a sense of these three things working together, Buddha, knowing Dhamma the way it is, wakeful, open, clear-heartedness, being intimate, connected with the way it is, allowing for beautiful, creative, nimble, fearless responsivity, engagement. But it's not you doing it because it flows naturally because the heart is intimate. So We have to let go of being skillful and we really put our heart initially into the training, Buddha knowing Dhamma. And then we recognize that free, non-attached, creative engagement with our partner, with our cat, with our own body, with this situation and that situation, the difficult stuff, the beautiful stuff in our life. We know, so why was that moment, or why, was, why were those moments, why was I able to handle it so effortlessly, so skillfully? Oh, because the way I was showing up, I wasn't trying to be skillful. I wasn't trying to be compassionate. I wasn't trying to be the wise person in the room. Instead, I was trying to be intimate, trying to be connected with the way it was. You see, it's such a self-centered agenda to need to be perfect, to need to be skillful, to need to be compassionate. It sounds like like a good thing, right? But it actually is neurotic. You know where we really learn this? is in our intimate relationships with partners, you know, with our spouses, with our lovers. You know, where we really want to do it right. But it's such a trip to put on the relationship, like, you know, the relationship is about me doing it right or me being the perfect lover or whatever. It tends to undermine the relationship. But if, on the other hand, we're in our relationships, and this could be just ordinary friendships or with relatives or with lovers, it doesn't really matter, with pets, if instead we really work on Buddha knowing, Dhamma, right? Just uncovering this capacity. And it has to be moment by moment. It's not theoretical. It's not conceptual. It's a practice, a moment-to-moment practice. Okay, like right now we can do it. Even listening to a talk and in a few moments responding as we discuss together, um, like, well, what does it mean? Like don't assume we know. What does it mean? to uncover this capacity to be open, to be clear, to be interested. right? The Buddha piece. What does it mean to be Buddha? What does that word point to that is possible? The capacity is here and now. Only here and now. Because we kind of know what distractedness is or sort of a lot of times, most of the, our life probably, we're dismissive like, I don't actually have to be present now because whatever's going on, it's not that important. Or I already think I know what's happening, so I actually don't need to be fresh, alert, intimate because I've done this before. I've peed before. So, like, when's the last time you really showed up when you were urinating? (laughs) Right? Let alone, like, so many moments during the day, this thought arises that. I got this, I know what's happening, I can check out. Right, So Buddha means that we're not under that spell of thinking I don't actually have to be present. And there's one thing related to the quality of Buddha is humility. Because it's, Buddha is really that term, points to the quality of mind that's wise. But wisdom is not like having a good idea about what the truth is, wisdom isn't conceptual in that way, in, in, a, in a sort of the Buddhist teachings point of view. Wisdom is not conceptual. It's not an idea. It's an activity. right? It's that clarity that, he, that comes out of actually being interested. And you can't be interested when you think you already know. We're natural the mind is naturally interested when we know that we don't know. We don't know this moment. We don't know the sort of intricate, complex play of causes and conditions right now. We don't know it unless we become Buddha, unless we're willing to be awake or open, willing to feel, willing to be exposed, vulnerable to whatever is making an impression on the mind on the heart on the body right now whatever's showing up in our experience and we don't even need to interpret it because that gets in the way of being buddha now thoughts will arise interpretations will arise but we're not like as from an egoic point of view investing in the interpretation totally okay if the thinking mind tells a story interprets experience that's what the thinking mind does. And we don't need to turn that into a problem. Thinking doesn't have to be a problem. The problem is when the mind gets dependent on that function. So instead we're learning to take refuge in being Buddha and then we notice Buddha then and finally knows how to be with the wild movement of life, sounds, thoughts, emotions, sensation, right? So in Buddhism, the totality of our experiencing are the five, the exposure, the sensitivity to the five senses and exposure to mental activity. And really there is nothing else in the totality of our experience all life long. This is how we sense, this is how we know what we call life, the world. So, this is this dance of hearing, smelling, tasting, touching. Did I say touches? Sensation, right? And mental activity. This exposure is Dhamma or Dharma. Buddha knows that. Buddha's intimate with that moment by moment the richness, vulnerability, the wildness of that. And that's always here and now, except that most of the time the habit of the mind is to be identified with its interpretation of what's going on. And so it doesn't feel very wild. Because our thoughts give our life or the world a kind of static and then dead quality. And because the world feels dead, because we're attached to our ideas, we need something to spice up life. So we become especially vulnerable to consumerism and wild sex and drugs and rock and roll and anything that's spicy because life, when we're mostly attached, identified with our thoughts, feels flat. Because the mental interpretation isn't life. It's a mental interpretation. And some of you heard me say this. It's like mistaking the menu for eating the meal. You know, the menu is related to the meal, but it's not really the same, right? And you could, the best menus, you know, after a while, it's boring. Then we've got to look at another menu, and that's kind of what we do. We have a thought, it's a little enti- little juiciness, but really nothing too nutritious there. And we think about something else, a little juicy, but always ends up not being much of anything. But actually, when we're Buddha knowing Dhamma, one of the telltale signs, and it's an actually an important barometer in your meditation practice, and then more and more in your daily life, there's energy. The mind-body feels energized, when it's Buddha knowing Dhamma. And one of the sort of standing jokes in um, Buddhist meditation circles is if you're feeling bored, you're not paying attention, right? Boredom is a telltale sign that we're lost in our thoughts about stuff. Because our thoughts are only riffs on thoughts we've already had. There's nothing out of the box when we're attached or identified with our thinking, but when we're in the present moment, it really has that sense of freshness. One of the neat things, you know, having been on a lot of retreats, and then uh, I headed w- it up recently. I think I'm getting close now to three years of my adult life on silent meditation retreats. So a long time, and then you know, I teach a lot. I teach residential retreats a lot, and so hearing people come off of retreats. And just sort of back in their normal world, back at home, back in traffic, back doing their jobs, but everything feels like that line as if lit from within, like everything seems so, the grass is so green, it's like people are high, oh, sidewalk, wow, sidewalk. But nothing's really changed. But the mind isn't in its uh, isn't attached to its mental interpretation, like the idea sidewalk is boring, right? Sidewalk. When's the last time we showed up, like really raw, real, in the experience of feeling, seeing, relating to sidewalk? I sometimes tell this story. It sounds a little weird, and it happened a long, long time ago when I was, I don't know, eight or nine. I was just walking home from school. School was about, back then, we walked to school. (laughs) It was uh, the mid-60s, walking back from school. And it was just a block away from my house, you know, and I kind of still have the visual image, but it was just like I had a moment. This is my much later interpretation. You know, I just, mindfulness kicked in. And so I wasn't in the concept, I'm walking home from school and I'm a block away. That's just the mental interpretation, right? And the mind was just, for whatever reasons, the supporting causes were there, the mind was just fresh. And it was seeing the sidewalk, it was seeing the line between the sidewalk and the grass. This is in North Minneapolis where I grew up. And uh, it's like it made such an impression on the mind and the heart, I can still remember it. And there was nothing out of the ordinary. In fact, the reason it made such a strong impression is like it felt impactful, but from my, now once back in my thinking mode, it's like, what just happened? And all I could notice was just ordinary stuff. Right, So I didn't get what had happened. But it was later, I knew something had happened, but I didn't know what it was. And it was just Buddha knowing Dhamma. That's all it was. It was just the knowing mind, that natural capacity to be open, undefended, fresh, Clear, not caught up in our thought about this or that, meeting, in this case, the mostly visual experience of seeing where I was walking, sidewalk and grass. That's just sort of interesting. And then the more we can inhabit, live in that place, then we start catching moments of Sangha. Like we handle situations in creative, nimble ways and it felt like looking back in hindsight pretty effortless. The skill, the creativity, the ability to refrain from saying things when it doesn't seem useful. right? Like all of that, what would normally be difficult, like oh, I really don't want to screw this up or I really want to handle this skillfully. right? I really want to make this thing happen over here in this part of my life. Life engagement can feel so like weightful a lot of the time but when there's Buddha knowing Dhamma then that engagement participating in life turns out to be more like Sangha has that flavor of effortless and creative and nimble and like no trace like it was good it felt right and it didn't feel burdensome to have been me doing what I did And again, you can notice it in other people too, like Pat. You know, cleaning tonight. Pat often comes early with Brad and many others. Dave and um, yeah, just taking care of the building and you know noticing in other people, like oh, they just seem so happy. You know, I mean, not in an extraordinary way, but just like nature doing what nature does. No neurotic no burdened heart, no somebody wanting to be seen, look at me, you know. And it's like, oh, it's a thing of beauty. When you see somebody who's sangha, Buddha knowing dhamma, and then their participation is, has that kind of simple, clean, natural, Like sometimes we call it like, that person is really comfortable in their own skin. Like they're totally who they are, they're not trying to be somebody else. But in being who they are naturally and effortlessly, there's something beautiful about it. you know. So given our particular personality, the particular way our mind has been conditioned, it's sangha, like you being sangha. It's not going to look like me being sangha. Because one, it will be specific to that time and place, and it will also be specific to your conditioning, your particular body and mind and personality. But observing it in our own life, observing it, watching somebody else, he will have that sense like, oh yeah, that is truly a thing of beauty. Whatever that is, that's where I want, that's where I'm aiming, that kind of freedom and skillfulness. And in this way, spiritual freedom in Buddhism, in the Buddhist teachings, Spiritual freedom is always related to skillfulness. There's no like ethical conduct that's not related to the deepening of wisdom and understanding and love. And there's no deepening of wisdom and understanding and love that isn't practical in terms of how somebody is showing up in their particular circumstance. The messy stuff, you know, like being in a relationship, having kids... You know, deciding what to buy, deciding how to relate to the suffering around us. That's actually more where we get a sense of how our practice is going. I think Jack Hornfield once said, and I'll leave it here so we have time to share with each other you know, you think your practice is going well? Go home and visit your parents, right? Right? Where things are like, messy, and there's a lot of history, you know, fall in love. You could say that would be another thing. Think your practice is going well? Try to have an intimate relationship with another human being, right? Or get involved with making the world a better place or take on some responsibility or have kids (laughs) if you think your practice is really going well. (laughs) I practiced in Burma for five months. I... Did temporary ordination, was able to practice as a monk. And one of the things the uh, Sayada, the teacher there, would say, and it's it's was sort of a general thought that, you know, that young women, you know, in the sort of traditional culture, very patriarchal in Burma, Myanmar, you know, like, listen, you're gonna get married and probably have kids. It'd be really to your advantage to become enlightened before you get married. So that would be a real encouragement for the young women, you know, in their late teens or whatever, to like between semesters, like in the summer or whatever, to put in a couple months. And because they, you know, it was just culturally conditioned that you just follow the rules if you're, especially a woman in that culture. They had great success. They just like the sadars more than business people or government leaders. The head of these monasteries were like top of the heap. So what they said, you know, you'd listen to. So even though culturally in terms of power, young women didn't have a lot of political, economic, cultural power in a lot of ways, they had a lot of success in their practice. And one of the neat things, like being at the monastery, is like seeing these young women and you just energetically felt how much wisdom, how much power they had in their practice. I mean, it was really felt inspiring just to see them walk, like how present they were. They were Sangha, right? This is what I mean by Sangha. And it's contagious. When you see somebody, it doesn't matter what they're doing, chopping vegetables, walking from here to there, sipping water. There's just, it's the freedom, the absence of neurotic activity can be palatable if we're present to observe it. Because, you know, There could be a fully awakened person, whatever that might be, but if we're lost in thought, we're not going to notice it. It doesn't matter if it's a Buddha. right? But if we're willing, if we're practicing, if we're being sensitive, and somebody walks by or we're interacting with somebody who's really deeply in that place, it's very impactful to sense the absence of neurotic activity. That's why we use this word in the Buddhist teachings, emptiness, right? It's kind of a provocative word, but it's the heart that is empty of neurotic activity. That's how the Buddha defines awakening. It is the mind empty of greed, anger, and delusion, empty of neurotic craving, empty of needing the moment to be different than it is. And when we're around, when we ourselves momentarily or in that place to some degree, or other people, we sense it. And then that is when we really get how these three things come together, Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha. So that's what we mean by refuge. So please stay for the last 12 minutes as we open it up to hear questions and comments from your practice, what you've been learning, what's been challenging. We learn a lot from hearing from each other so, anybody like to start us off? Share your name if you're willing. We do record usually on Sunday night, and we put those recordings on the website so other people can listen in. Um, yeah, hi, my name's Amanda. Um, when you were telling your story about walking along the sidewalk, it reminded me of the times that I have spent backpacking on a trail alone, um, feeling the weight of the pack very concentrated and focused on the present moment of my feet on the trail, the beauty around me, and just being at such peace. And so I just wanted to share that as something that kind of brought me back to. Um, and I don't know if others have had that experience, but that that's, was very powerful for me. So I just yeah. wanted to share that. No, oh, Amanda, that's really beautiful. And remember, we normally see sangha in terms of people. But we can see Sangha in terms of wilderness or the sidewalk, right? Because when we you know, I was standing outside uh, just before the program for, you know, 25 minutes or so, uh, take a look at our gardens, Kathleen and many others, they have just, I don't know if people know this, but when we bought this building in 2006, you remember, Todd? but uh, it was all asphalt. There were no gardens anywhere take a look at what community members have done over the last, really, we didn't really start. We didn't rip up the asphalt until, I think, 2009 or 2010. So it's really amazing. I was just standing there. But there's something about just um, observing a couple goldfinches, which is what I was doing in part when I was out there. And it's the absence of neurotic activity. Now, I'm not saying that goldfinches are enlightened, but I'm saying that we can observe a sunflower plant, clouds, a goldfinch, or a sidewalk, and we can specifically notice that in this sense contact, this sense experience, there's no greed, anger, and delusion. There's nothing neurotic. And then it can be a way of practicing, getting back there, like backpacking especially. Yeah, thanks. I also found a lot of healing there. I was mo- going through some things, so. Yeah, thanks for sharing. Would like to go next. Yeah, please. you Want to pass the mic over? First row of chairs. Hi
0: everyone. Uh, my name is Shane, and I had this really cool experience this morning. I've been meditating for I don't know three years, and but I've never really done it. Um, I did a t- technology fast today just to kind of not do that, and I normally use, like, a meditation app, uh, either Insight Timer or Headspace, and it's still facilitated, but today I did it with no timer, no clock, and I was like, I don't know, how long am I going to go for, (laughs) you know, like, is this going to be too long? And at first, it was just like I was swirling because I was managing my own space. I didn't have anyone, no time, no music, and but then when I walked away from that time, which I don't know how long it was... I've never felt more like it extended like I was walking and I just kept thinking about my feet and I wasn't presently trying to. But I guess my question is, is like in, I guess your practice or anyone else's, like that just ramped it up to 11 for me because I was in charge of it and I had to be more present and I had to control my own mind. Maybe not control, but sit with it a bit more. So just find
1: your, your refuge.
0: Yeah. Without someone else sort of giving me thoughts or cues or anything and um, the first part was just chaos, but once I got through that, it—I don't know—it just stuck with me. So I didn't know thoughts that you had. Well, I think
1: you said it all. It's really beautiful sharing, and uh, I think are really important. And because none of that existed when I started my practice in the early '80s, it doesn't occur to me that a lot of you, because those apps—I know some of the people doing those apps, good people. Some of those apps are quite good, but remember, we don't want to become dependent on any crutch. The whole essence is independence, we or self-reliance. So, use like even coming to common ground can be a crutch, right? Use it when you need it, but really remember we're moving towards independence. Just the same with like even when you're practicing at home without an app or a support, listening to a guided meditation. But even then, it's like it's a crutch to have to be home in your little meditation spot. So we're always, like the point we're practicing for is out there in the world, interacting in the messy stuff. Now, use a crutch when we need a crutch. But when you don't have a crutch, or when you don't need a crutch, then practice being free there without the crutch. Sometimes there isn't a crotch, and we just do the best we can, even though it's a swirl like you you described, Shane. Yeah, thanks so much for sharing that. Really great to hear. Yeah, in the corner here. Oh, did you want to share? Oh, okay.
2: (laughs) Hello, my name is Jim. I just, as I was arriving here, (laughs) you had mentioned, you know, do something that, when you think your practice is going well, something happens and that as I was arriving here, I noticed there was someone sitting on the ground drinking and feel exactly like you say, a moment of greed, anger and delusion of here's this person, you know, well, you know, here comes trouble. Uh, you know, <laughs> think of all the bad things that can happen when this, this, per, this thing is around and, I had a little bit of a moment afterwards of realizing that and saying that is actually a, a person just like me that person has the same feelings with me is doing you know as you know is experiencing the same thoughts and reality as me and uh, that just what you what you said there really struck a chord with me. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And living with that being because part of what we're opening to are all of our conditioned biases around, you know, like someone drinking, but all around race, around class, around gender and sex, and all age and body size. And it's that when we start to be willing to be sensitive, it can feel really overwhelming. But it's how we wake up. It's not easy. But once we see how much learning and energy and freedom there is, we don't really want to go back to being superficial or distracted again. But we shouldn't suppose that exposure initially is very pleasant or easy to handle, because I don't find it always pleasant or easy to handle. Thanks, Jim. Maybe time for one more person else would like to share with the group? What have you been learning or what questions have come to mind? Yeah, over here.
0: Um, I'm Sally, and I thought what you said about boredom was really important, um, because that's something I've noticed. Yeah, look. that's something, boredom, I, about boredom. That's something I've noticed um, a lot in my life and also in my practice. Um, and so when you said it's really basically um, just my, I'm just lost in thoughts as opposed to actually being there, I think that's really helpful. I, I wonder if you could say any more about, and even in the practice, about getting bored. You know, just like it's just not interesting enough for some reason, you know.
1: Anyway. Yeah. Well, one thing is getting interested in boredom. So when you catch your mind saying that I'm bored then let train that to be a little mindfulness. Oh, that's interesting. Is that really true? What is this experience of boredom? Let me be the first person to be so open and exposed to boredom that if it's going to kill me, really, take me. <laughs> it's the same thing with restlessness. It's like we think we know what restlessness or boredom, these very common emotional states are, but we haven't actually been curious for a long, long time if ever. Like, what is the state of boredom? You might find, as people have, we have, it's really painful initially when we start to open to boredom because it's like a wormhole to this truth that, like a deeper insight into dukkha, into that life experience is unsatisfactory. It doesn't give the ego what the ego wants. And that's that's like a deep, deep betrayal. But life experience can never give the ego what it wants. Because the ego, what does the ego want? It wants like solid ground. Is life going to deliver that? No, never. No, it's just not it's just there's no way. And so it's funny how something as relatively ordinary and simple as boredom can be a wormhole open to the deepest existential pain or crisis even but that's we have to see that we have to learn how to be intimate with that too but we got we can circle or orbit that as long as we need to but someday we'll get tired of orbiting it i'll just sit down right in the middle of it yeah, thanks. Let's just take a few seconds and let go of the words. Maybe pass the microphone over to Jean in the corner here. Just appreciate a few seconds of silence together. appreciating the support, being here in community. We're not alone. And really receiving the gift of these teachings for so many centuries, so many generations, women and men and other folks received these teachings in their busy lives and did their best to develop real wisdom and compassion and modeled the teachings and passed them down one generation after another. And then in this amazing way here it exists at this corner in Minneapolis at this time. It's our turn now to connect with these teachings and integrate them, become independent, live these teachings out into the world, and be part of these these causes and conditions supporting freedom and release and wisdom and compassion. So may this be so.
0: This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, Or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.